Hello and welcome to the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. I am Jensen Beeler. And I am Quentin Wilson. We've got a good show for you today, Quentin. I think we should just jump right to it because I am curious to hear your thoughts on the whole kerpluffle with Volkswagen. Volkswagen. So uh, what has happened is Volkswagen got caught red-handed by apparently a very small uh, research firm in Virginia. I, I don't know that somehow, some way they caught the algorithm. There was a, a cheat in the algorithm, and, and I think all of these TDI diesel cars that VW and only, I think only one Audi possibly, but any VW that has this TDI engine, I think it's a four-cylinder, this algorithm defaults to a clean mode when it when it feels it's being tested. So there's a specific amount of things that, that happen when they get put into the test cell, uh, when they're putting the gas analyzer and they're starting it up. And, right? and so that, as they start it up and go through that test, there's a few things that happen and the computer knew it and then would automatically default to a cleaner running, but it would be, end up being less powerful and um, less feel, apparently. Right. That's kind of the key thing. It was, it was all about power and then it would be clean. It would run clean. It would show as clean on the test instruments. Then, uh, as you go down the road, it would default to power mode and feel more peppy and, and give the acceleration that, uh, they thought was, uh, good. Right. So they got caught after, I, I don't know how many years, but it's been very many years, probably since 08 or 09 that they've been, uh, running these cars like this. Right. Um, and so they are getting a large amount of fines in the billion tens of billions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. Uh, so my opinion on that is good catch because holy crap, that's an amazing thing to be able to catch understanding how complex these ECUs are nowadays. All right. Knowing from my background with Ducati, uh, knowing what the fuel tables, the ignition yeah. tables, the trash control tables, the ABS and all that being all in a, you know, the amount of computing data in there to find that is pretty impressive. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, I think more core to what I want to talk about on this issue because the, the car side, we'll leave that to the car journalist. Yeah, what, sure. My interest in it is of course, what it does to the motorcycle industry. And I think you touched on a very salient point about, uh, the testing standards, um, how rigorous the testing is and what it means in, in real life because you know we only have to go back to 2011 to think about the Kawasaki Ninja ZX-10R and it came to the US in a very different form than it came out in the uh, rest of the globe especially in Europe so officially it got a 750 rpm yeah. reduction on its red line and you know it made a lot less horsepower than it was claimed to make in Europe, and it was all because of EPA noise. Noise, uh, though. Noise. That's the interesting thing. Because at the top end, they're not measuring it, even though they should. They're not. They don't care what it's putting out when it's screaming at ten thousand RPM. Because how often are you there? Again, within the duty cycle of the engine. Eh. So they're probably looking at well, how often are these people in a race bike? Yeah, you're there all the time. But if you're cruising down the road, why? We're not worried about it. Right. Okay, fair right. enough. I get that. But if the noise side of it is big for, for, and it is, it's a huge problem, right? Sure. Then they and had to go the, that far, yeah. right? And it was the same thing with the uh, Honda RC 21.3 VS. Why does it make less horsepower in the US? Mostly because of noise, mostly. Sure. Eh, there's some emission stuff there. And what do we see? We see Honda reduce the red line until it falls within that parameter. And you know that red line got reduced even farther in the Japanese market. 
And you uh, see that exhaust and it's got all kinds of huck and buck stuff going on to it to make probably to help make it quiet as possible. Right. Yeah. I remember someone told me a little while ago, uh, it would be very interesting to see if you went down to dealer showrooms and pick, started picking up motorcycles, putting them on a dyno and doing, uh, the appropriate, uh, noise test to see if it would, which bikes would pass and which ones would fail. Yeah. Because I don't think very many pass, and and the the way it was explained to me in the in the Kawasaki situation was that was Kawasaki actually adhering to the law, whereas maybe there are some other OEMs that didn't. Be very interested to take that project. I'd up love at to know point. what the test is. Where do they put the mics? How are they? Right. How are they evaluating it? There's high ranges and low ranges, and so say with the uh, first time I I took notice of this was probably 15 years ago. We started seeing, of course, it was Kawasaki's come with. Stuff in the panels, uh, like sound deadening. We right. look. It looked my, my like Yamaha it was, has that too. Even sure, All uh, way no, back eventually from most everybody has it. You know, most Ducatis have it. Um, but it, uh, in the beginning, you're like, is this like heat? You know, you, know, you don't really think about it. You're like, why is there soft, fluffy stuff on the inside? But it's it's all sound. The the Panigale, uh, uh clutch cover is is really thick, and if you take off the clutch cover. And you see inside there, there's this deadening, sound deadening thing. Mm-hmm. It's engineered I and mean, it's pretty, it looks like it adds $30 to the cost of the bike, you know, all right, it, right off the bat. It, 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 would, it probably cost a whole lot more than that for you and I to buy it. But I mean, it's from a, from a production standpoint, they're adding a lot of cost and weight to these machines to get the, the, the sounds to come down, right? When the clutch is actually quite noisy. The irony being that it's a wet clutch and it's not that noisy compared to an old that sounds like a tambourine, right? Right. But they're trying to, to quiet that down. Uh, some of the stuff that uh, there was a, uh, not a recall, but there was a, a, a situation where early Panigales were shipped without heat, uh, heat, heat guards around the, the legs, around the rear cylinder heads and, and uh, at the, ex- the rear of the exhaust because it gets hot. And a lot of that, I always I often wondered if some of that was designed and developed with the idea that to, to reduce noise as well, especially because the rear cylinder head is just sticking right there. It's one of the biggest problems that we have with air-cooled machines. Air-cooled machines, especially with the fins, create a lot more noise than a lot of people understand, the engine noise. Is that just because there's more surface area for vibration, yeah, more vibration, vibration in the air? You'll see if you look on most air-cooled Ducatis, and, and frankly Hondas, anything, you'll see these little rubber dealies in between the fins. The fins will resonate against each other and cause quite a lot of sound. And they're in bikes from, shoot, early 90s, right? I, I would wonder if they're the, those little rubber dampers aren't on something in the, well into the 80s. It's been a big problem. You know, we, we don't care because we're used to, the first thing you do is put an exhaust on. And most people think, when they think of en- uh, engine sounds, they think of exhaust sounds. But the intake sound and the exhaust sound, and then the engine itself. It's quite a noisy operation, especially with motorcycles. So the fairings are good in a lot of cases. Fairings are great because it help, helps them muffle, right? It's a, it's a problem. That's part of the, That's one thing that we have to deal with more, more than most would understand, for right. sure. Right. I think only as um, time goes on and the restrictions get even tighter, that's going to be where you see the innovation in the motorcycles. It's not going to be so much can we make this bike with 200 horsepower? Can we make this bike with 200 horsepower and still make it Euro 4? 
right or right. euro five or whatever six next, as sure. it comes down the pipe because that's going to be much more difficult to do so the you 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 touched on euro three to euro four so uh i have limited knowledge of euro four i know that the multi-strata the 2015 multi-strata was the first completely euro four legal platform for a motorcycle uh, that doesn't mean that there weren't others out there, but I know for sure that that was the first that right. was released and that was stamped, this is right. Euro 4. I know the MV Augusta Turismo Veloce 800 is Euro 4, but it just, I think it's just now hitting dealerships, to be honest. Got it. So, But bottom line is they're, right. they're starting to adopt it. They have out, to yeah. by, I believe, 2016. Yeah. So everything, everything had to come out anyway. So I think Ducati got ahead of that and figured it out and said, all right, we're going to do this with the Multistrada. And it's that just, was because it was just like a... I don't want to say a dry run, but I mean, for Euro 4 being such a big thing for 26, every single bike that we're about to see at Eichmann or anything that's about to come out between now and the end of the year will have to be Euro 4 if it's going to be in the European market. And, I, and there's a part of me that like wonders, like, why would Ducati get out so in front of it? Maybe just to like get one under the belt and be like, okay, that's how we do it. Yeah. That's the model. Absolutely. And what did we learn? What can we streamline for the other you know, 12 models that we're about to yeah. bring to market? Or Surprisingly forward thinking. Yeah. I think it's great. And so they did it. And let's talk about what that is, though. There, it's more than just emission standards. It's more than just what's coming out of the tailpipe. Euro 4, it's this all-encompassing thing where you have to have easy access manuals mm -hmm. to everybody, not just specific mechanics, not just the dealerships. It has to be easy access online for anybody that wants to figure out how to do something on their machine. doesn't mean you have to provide the tools, but the manual has to be there. That's one of the things, Interesting. right? Which yeah. I, it's not easy. Right. That's not an easy thing for manufacturers that have been very uh, not. They're not very forthcoming with their technical oh, absolutely. data like that. Because right? I'll tell you, I have the shop manual for every single motorcycle that I own. And I guarantee you, I got every single one of those illegally through a forum or through some website. Oh, yeah. through eBay, some, right some, off the bat. Yeah. Some back. Because it was difficult connection. and expensive right. to buy. You don't want to spend $100 on a manual that really should be $20. And right? they're extremely useful. Oh, yeah. They're so great. Sure. Now, the first when I got a Triumph six seven five, I bought a, a crashed one, right from a from an insurance buyback shop in 06, early early days. As soon as I saw the bike, I was like, okay, looks like Triumph finally figured out what what they're doing because before that they'd been tragedy. So I was like, I want one of those. Told my buddy that runs an insurance buyback shop, kind of a chop shop in mm -hmm. L.A. Got the bike and looked at a manual. I didn't have any connections at any any Triumph dealers at the time, and I immediately went to eBay and got. <laughs> I felt bad in some way, but. You just want to pay a small amount of money and get the information you need fairly quickly, and it shouldn't be that difficult. But manufacturers want to make it a little bit difficult because they don't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry trying to, to work on their machines. It doesn't support the dealer network very well. I get it, but at the same time, there's a lot of people that like to tinker. And this day and age, it's going away, um, or it seems to be going away, but there's plenty of people like myself, and that's how I got on the motorcycles deeply, was I... Didn't want somebody else working on my thing. I wanted to learn what was going on. I wanted to understand what was going on inside that engine. So I, I became a mechanic because of it. Right. So I have a I have a deeply skewed view of that. I definitely am all about it. But I understand somebody like yourself. You don't want to take your engine apart and put it back together. But you do want to know what's going on in there, and you want to produce some preventative maintenance to make sure that you don't have to. Right? Sure, sure. And you want to know, hey, what does it take for me to do the basic tune-up stuff? adjust the valves, sink the throttle bodies, whatever that Replace thing the might clutch. be, right? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Consumables. You should be able to do that. Service and your I think forks. it adds yep. 
deeply to the experience of a motorcyclist to be able to do a good portion of that stuff because that is how involved motorcycles are. We could go off on a tangent on that. I don't want to do that. So yeah, let's, let's get, get back, back to Euro 4. Get back to Euro 4. So Euro 4 with the, with the manuals, with the emission standards, safety standards. Uh, I don't know what the requirement is, but you know, a, there was rumors that ABS is going to be forced to be standard. I don't know well, if that's... I don't, know if that, I don't think that's, that's part of Euro, Euro 4. 4 that, but that's, that's a European thing already. And it's coming. So that might be another thing. They're doing these steps, right? Another thing is onboard diagnostics, making sure that like OBD2 was a platform that most people that deal with cars know where you plug in with a very specific connector right. that's underneath your dash in right. a very specific place. All the codes are the same across anything that is quote unquote OBD2, right? And this would have been from the early 90s on, right? It's a standardized you, error. Exactly. So the standardization system. is what's happening with Euro 4. They're starting to make it standard so that when you throw a map sensor code on a Multistrada 1200 is going to be the same as the map sensor code on a BMW S1000RR. That's Euro 4. That's the idea. I'm not saying that's what's happening yet, but that's one of the ideas is that they're going to start standardizing all of this so that when people work on them, it's an easy thing to do to make sure that you can make them efficient and and easy and not and not create more problems later down the road. So does that mean that mechanics will have the same diagnostic Well, box? I think that's where they're going. Uh, right. That's not happening right now because Ducati still need a, a Ducati diagnostic system, a DDS right. to, to access and or update everything. Right. And a BMW needs a BMW yeah, one and it's, a Honda. Its tool is gnarly. And, well, yeah, a exactly. one and a Harley needs a rock. But the idea, <laughs> you'd see, be you nice, see, see be what nice I did to there? our Harley brethren. Right. They had Magneti. You know, their first their first big dip into fuel injection. One of the first big dips was Magneti Morelli. It's a very interesting thing. So they used the Italians because maybe they didn't want to go to Bosch. It makes no sense when you think of the V-Rod being a derivative of a Porsche design. It's such a strange thing, right? Uh, it makes it makes sense to me just in the sense that Magneti Morelli is a very talented company at doing certain things. And I could see I could see Porsche even using Magneti Morelli for certain applications, yeah, sure. especially yeah. in racing. Because you look at MotoGP and there is a huge labor war so to speak on acquiring good magneti morelli engineers oh, yeah. and data technicians sure. and honda was poaching off a of yamaha and yeah. yamaha was poaching off a of honda and i think ducati was sitting there in the middle just hoping for the table scraps and it was yeah, a big it was a big deal they weren't worried more as much about table scraps because they're italian and they're, i get there's a lot of the politics going on there right so that well and now we see that with the spec ecu and it's basically Magneti Morelli. Do, well, it's, it's Magneti Morelli that's doing it, but the um, default uh, spec software for the open class is basically Ducatis. And it yeah. basically, they showed up and the next revision had all these changes and then right, you know, clever people are like, huh, that looks just like Ducati. And there's like Ducati fingerprints sure. in the data file of it. And you're like, it's oh, gonna be that that's way, where though. that, who, who developed that? That's interesting. Who developed that for Magneti Morelli? And it was Ducati. Yeah. All right, back back then because that's tangent. Sorry, we'll go back to the the Euro Four being the same thing. That, that here, here's the deal. That way, I as the independent mechanic, I get a Ducati on my lift, and I'm in you weird, random, out in the middle of nowhere in this place. But I happen to have whatever tool, and I plug into it, and it turns out that there is a safety recall on a bit of programming because this happens, sure. right? Where it's not just a mechanical thing we're changing. They say, hey, our trash control strategy is unsafe at, in, in some way, shape, or form. 
you need to download this new one and that'll this this euro four rig will help bring it in to where uh you're you're going to be allowed to do that hmm. uh, as an independent eventually that that's where the, the the gaps being bridged euro four i don't think is quite at that level i haven't dug into it enough i know for sure though that as an independent you can't talk to the thing without a dds but i think that's where they want to get to the point where if the vehicle is unsafe in some way then it, you don't have to necessarily be at a dealer that's the idea the eventual target for this stuff so that's an interesting thing the euro four reg that, that's interesting because you bring up a point that reminds me of kind of something else that's going on in the industry because because it sounds like in a way the Euro 4 is protecting the independent mechanic or is protecting the consumers. hobbyist mechanic, the consumer's mechanic. But you see, and so that's in Europe. And then what we have in, in the USA is this big issue with intellectual property and patent law where there's actually, it's, it's more it's more of a bigger issue in agriculture, but it's going to trickle into the, oh, yeah, the automotive that. industry as well. Yeah, oh. you know what I'm talking about. So, so this idea that like through DMCA, Digital Millennial yeah. Copyright yeah. Act. John Deere. Yeah. So so it's this idea that like now it's illegal to crack or go circumvent any sort of digital rights management. And so like you have you know companies like John Deere and GM and Fiat and and I don't I think Honda's there's a there's a consortium of manufacturers that are that is dealing with this directly. So it's none of the no one except like I think John Deere is directly getting their fingers dirty, but like Honda is a part of it and, and Suzuki and Where uh, I don't, I'm not sure about Suzuki. I know Honda for sure is a part of this consortium along with, you know, Chrysler and all these others. But sure. you wouldn't be able basically to to work on anything that has a computer, which, you know, when you look at the modern motorcycle or the modern vehicle, it's ridiculous is, is everything. It ever, so that the, the story that I read was about either John Deere or. Yeah, it's John Deere. Tecumseh John Deere's the big Kubota or whatever it was. Marquee bad guy. And the the poor farmer in middle of nowhere Idaho was explaining and in order for me to fix this thing that I need to make my living, I have to put it on a trailer and take it to, you know, hundreds of miles away to Boise or whatever it would be, right? To get it fixed and this is a this is perturbing my business. This is an inconvenience on a high level where I should be able to just crack this thing and be done. But because these vehicles are so uh, sophisticated, they'll actually be sending signals like Bluetoothing to or, or transmitting uh, sometimes with some sort of Wi-Fi uh, to home base somehow. I don't know. There's there's the talks of it that that would be the thing is that you get in any vehicle and it's constantly looking for signals to talk, talking to home saying, hey, I'm doing OK over here. Oh, hey, somebody's trying to break into me and change my map. Right. right, right. Somebody's trying to fix me. And I'm not at a at a dealer. I, you know, it could be anything. When you start thinking at a higher level, it gets very scary. Like I started thinking about um, there was just a recent paper done by a, a white hat hacker on the Wi-Fi systems that are being installed in automobiles. And through so it's like GM. I think I don't know what the they what they call their system, but it's basically they put a Wi-Fi. A router in their car with a cellular connection and that allows the car to one get updates over the internet to stream media and, and, and be more car 2.0 but on the flip side you know what this hacker was able to discover was the security protocols are very weak and so he was actually able to you know turn on and off the lights switch off yeah, all the sure. entertainment system affect the car's ability to to accelerate he was basically able to shut the car down and you know, when you start thinking of all the digital systems in a car, and that was the bigger issue, is none of these things were firewalled from each other. Sure. So as soon as you got a hold of the AC, you could get a hold of the, 
the radio, you could get a hold of the signals, you could get a hold of the brakes, the brakes, the, the, the throttle, because it's all ride by wire. Oh, yeah. And you shut it down. And we started to see the motorcycle, especially on like the electric vehicle side, play with this idea of connected vehicles and what that can do. And I, I keep coming back to this this kind of black hat kind of thinking where it's like, well, isn't that interesting? Now your your Ducati when you park in your garage can call home. And I can tell you, look around my 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 living room here. All the speakers say Sonos. I know for a fact, because I have a friend that works at Sonos, that those dial home. And when you send them a report, it gives a lot of information about what your network does. Basically, a Sonos speaker, for people that don't know, it's a Linux box with a speaker attached to it. Huh. Okay. You know, and it's it's they have their own proprietary uh, version of Linux that they've developed. But it's basically a very small computer with speakers. And that's the platform that they've developed. And it's a very, it's a great technology. I can so, so then they could say, hey, this guy is, uh, this guy is listening to, to MC Hammer. We're going to turn this off. <laughs> I don't know if it goes quite to that level, but they can see what my home network looks like. They can see what other, oh, because, what it, because it's, you have it's in, Wi-Fi. Yeah. They can see what other devices are hooked up to it. They can see what networks are around me. I mean, just think of everything that a computer on a network can, can know, and it knows and it can dial it back. It's the same way I look at it with if I've got a, a wired motorcycle in my garage. How do I know it's not uploading information to Ducati? It's the same thing with your cell phone. Like you're, if you have an iPhone. Oh, yeah. It dials it's back to given. Apple and tells, how, hey, this user used these five apps today. Click this many times. They search Siri in this certain way. And not all of it's nefarious. Not all of it's nefarious. And some of it's it's a quality thing. And some of it's but a I don't research wanna- thing. But it's very interesting, and it's not hard to imagine information like that getting abused or getting into the wrong hands. And I started thinking about that in the motorcycling community and what that means, and it's kind of scary. I mean, we're not that far away from a Ducati with Wi-Fi, because I think, was it the Panigale R has Bluetooth? No, Multistrada. Multistrada, 2015 Multistrada. You, you, for some you, reason you I'm connect thinking your of, phone to it. Yeah, for some reason I'm thinking there's a, there's a, a thing with DDA plus... On the uh, Panigale. Yeah. No, I can't remember what the DDA Plus but, does. But it but also, yeah, but it also has right. a GPS. You know, yep. you sit there and you start looking at all the systems that are available. Okay, so you have connecti- You have the ability to connect. You have a GPS. You have all these systems that know how fast it was going, what was, you know. And now it, where it was when it was going that and fast. And now where right? it was going, was the front wheel up, was the front wheel down, how hard was were you on the brakes. Was he on a on a surface street? And you right? start sitting there and just like, not that I'm worried so much about you know, the highway patrol coming up and getting me, but like there's an interesting amount of information there that I don't necessarily want to share or, or shouldn't even be, be kept or shouldn't even be something that can be accessed. And I'm not saying that that's happening and I'm not accusing anyone, but it's just one of those things like we're not far from that. No, no, And I wouldn't be surprised if, if we discovered it was happening because it's just such an obvious thing to do because there's obvious benefits for, for a manufacturer to have that information. But it's like, what are we doing with that information? What are we doing to protect with that information? Uh, where was I the other day? Someone asked for a, a very sensitive piece of information for me. It was, it was, I think it was something to do with my shoulder. I'm still dealing with this broken collarbone. And um, they wanted me to, oh, uh, actually, I know exactly what it was. It was the Icon uh, Airframe Pro helmet launch that I'm about to go to at Chuckwalla. And they wanted me to give them my medical insurance number on the sign-up form online hmm. and and take a picture of the card. Hmm. And I'm sitting there going like, really? Like, what, what security are you going to put on that information? Because my medical record number 
is kind of an important number. It's not a social security number, and maybe I'm being a little too yeah, sure. tinfoil hat on it. But like that's a sensitive piece of information. In theory, once you have that number, you can go peruse through my health insurance carrier's database and find out everything about me. And you're not really even worried about the icon people or the people at the racetrack. You're worried about the somebody that would kind of slurp that info up right. on purpose. Because right? I guarantee you, it was it was Bonnier that 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 made the contact form as hosting this event. And I look at, the, at Bonnier and I'm like, okay. I don't trust you farther than I can throw you to make a secure <laughs> web form. I, yeah. I don't even think it was encrypted. I, I, yeah. I would have to actually look, go back and look at it. I'm like, I don't throw you farther than I can trust you. Why would I put that through the airwaves? What if I'm at an airport on an unencrypted network? Now I've put it out to everyone. Like, come on, we have to start thinking about our data. I think this will be a more of a modern time thing that the millennials will get to figure out on on how we store and give data and what sure. data we should ask for and what we should do with it once we have and what it. are the protocols for right. for firewalls and safety and right. and right that that's a big thing that I, it's it's being bandied about a little bit too openly right now right. especially with vehicles because they just want the newest latest greatest fastest internet connection on a motorcycle stuff but they're not really worried about some of the other ramifications of what of what would happen if, if things go wrong there's right? a push for that yeah sure. and, and it goes into like you were talking about the uh, your your sonos I'll, I'll say on some of these cars, we're looking at cars and it'll end up on bikes. We're looking at Bluetoothing a, a, a signal to a turn signal right. instead of a wire. Right. The wire would be to energize the light and that would be it. And that way you'd have a lighter, more simple wiring harness. And the only thing telling the turn signals, the lights, the, the, the moonroof, the, you name it, the device to work would, the only thing that would be, would be power to it through a wire but then the signal would just be Bluetooth, right. right? So all kinds of stuff on one of these vehicles could be run by that, right? Right. And that it, is scary. It's scary. The, the one saving grace is Bluetooth as a signal isn't very strong. You'd have to be in close proximity. But but when you think about, yeah, you just keep extrapolating that idea. Okay, if that's what's happening in cars and that's where we're happening at, at cars now, I'm trying to think, like, how is the motorcycle industry going to adapt to that? Because the motorcycle industry is always way behind the automotive industry and they don't have nearly the resources and that's what's going to come down to is who can do this right it's not that i fear that oh my turn signals yeah um, it's not going to operated work. by bluetooth i fear that the manufacturer that didn't put enough money to do it right is going to do some system where like that just became a vulnerability to my vehicle that you know now someone can shut down my motorcycle while i'm on it because you know you mr motorcycle oem didn't hire the 10 you know, a security specialist that you should have to go through your system and vet it out and make sure everything is firewalled and that the worst case scenario, the very worst case scenario, my turn signal doesn't work. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a scary part. And that's where I see where the technology progressing and I, and I'm not a Luddite. Like I'm, I'm very pro technology sure, and motorcycles, sure. but that is the one thing where I look at the unsophistication in the industry as being a damper to its progress. And we're going to hit that tipping point where, you know, there's just not going to be that many people that can play at that at the level anymore, and that the smaller manufacturers will either make an ear inferior product and go out of business, or they'll put, try and play with the big boys. And I don't know what will happen from there. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I agree. And the, from a business standpoint, there will be there there might be a manufacturer that comes out with the uh, with a protocol that then the other manufacturers have to adapt to or adopt, right? So uh, it might end up being very valuable for somebody to say, okay, we are the security, we are the vehicle system security experts, and we will do this. And it might be a worthwhile 
thing to have that. You say you say though that the uh, the motorcycle industry is you know far behind, and it is. But with um, say Audi purchasing the VW Group purchasing Ducati, and with BMW being uh, intrinsically BMW, linked to BMW yeah. cars, that's one of the reasons why they all those Euro brands are or tend to be at the sharp end because they do have some of these resources. In the past few years, it's been Ducati, but BMW always. I mean, they were fuel injecting an ABS and bikes in the '80s long before anybody else because sure. they had that. Sure. So, but that's what surprises surprises me because. Honda's the same way as far as you got a, a big company, they make cars, they make bikes. Why isn't yeah, there as much crossover? Yeah, that's a good question. Why Why is Honda the way it is? But that's another story. That's another. Did you see the um, the Honda Project 2 and 4? Yeah, yeah. That was, in, that was a collaboration of Honda Automotive and Honda Motorcycle and a very cool project. Very cool. We'll see. I want to see the thing driving down the road, laying big blackies everywhere. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's just been stationary shots. So I want to, sure. I want to hear that. I want to see it. I want to, I want to see a lap time at the Nürburgring, whatever. Sure. I want to, I'm curious to be, but well, it really, is it just a bunch of pomp and crap or is it going to be good? Right. Is there going to be anything solid there? If they, yeah, I mean, that, that'll be the interesting scene to see if there's, if there's any, if it's a runner for starters, because whenever you see these show bikes, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors sure. <laughs> involved. That's why I'm what's saying. underneath the skin. That's but if I'm it saying. does come out, like I would have to imagine just on paper, like that thing would oh, have yeah. to rip. No doubt. Right? But you know, putting bike engines in cars is always the best thing. And right. a lot of people think, Oh, well it's a high horsepower. It makes 240 horsepower. Well, they, they toned it down because it's so, so for people that don't know, it's, it's the Honda RC 21, three V S engine. So straight out of that MotoGP bike for the street put into basically an open wheel, glorified go-kart it's not quite like a ktm expo it's more like an aerial adam go-kart kind yeah, of deal sure you you sit off to the side in a pod in a weird way next to the motor that's yeah. that's the so thing balance so, so you're right. you know weight you know 100 and something odd pounds about as much as that engine huh sure Close Mo to it. most of these engines i would say especially if they're not like a, the Panigale engine structural in a heavy way, so there's more to it. Right. It probably weighs between 130 and 150 pounds. That's what I was thinking, like 150 right? pounds. Put about a medium-sized person in there, 150 yeah. pounds. Sure. Starts getting balanced really quick. No, it's a neat thing, and, and there has been a cause for a manufacturer to think about that because, say, the was it the Expo? Is that the KTM? KTM, yeah. And uh, the Ariel Atom, which... It was is loosely imported in the United States. This is a right. car that's basically a I don't even know what to call it. It it doesn't it's open it's wheel. It's a full size go kart. It's, it's like is. it's yeah. like a, a Caterham Seven or or a Lotus Seven or Caterham Super Seven. So wheels on the outside, almost all exposed, and then a, a strange exoskeleton tube frame. Looks like a Ducati trellis. And there's a local company called Palatov Racing that was uh, fitting different engines in those because they came with like, you know, some sort of Honda option and then some sort of, I don't know, Coventry Climax or something else. But the guys here in, in Portland, Palatov, were putting a V8 that was uh, consisted of two Hayabusa cylinder heads mated to a common crankcase. And one of these was out at Oregon Raceway Park a few years ago. It's really cool just because huh. how trick is that? A, a teeny little V8 high rpm v8 yeah. stuffed into a car like that huh. so there's there's enthusiast draw but it's like it'd probably be a fairly vocal minority people that would really want it sure. and that can store it and have it as their toy when you could just go buy a motorcycle and or have your porsche gt3 rs fast car you know there's there's not too many people that would want that or that it, there can't be that big of a market i should say yeah i get the how i just don't know if i understand the why yeah 
but it's it's interesting it's interesting to see what what toys for the rich are out there but i, I just i brought up the honda just because it, it was a great example of actually the automotive and the motorcycling divisions working together and what they can create i wonder if that will be something that leads to more collaboration in the future or if it's just a one-time thing to help yeah uh grab some headlines but i think that's it um one headline i did want to talk about i like that segue was this bomoda mantra redesigned by uh sasha lockage my thoughts on the original mantra are not positive to say i i think it's a really ugly motorcycle i can i have some friends though that that are collectors a couple of them really into bomodas and they love it because it is just so different from kind of what was coming from that brand uh, before it. And that's kind of comes from an interesting time in Bomoda where, you know, um, they'd kind of, I would say moved into the next generation from the classic kind of tambourine designs that we think of as being iconic Bomoda designs. Like when I, when I say Bomoda to you, you probably think of, I think of a Tessie. Do you, is that what you think of? Oh, of uh, course, cause you're just kind I was of from that era, yeah, right? So fair enough. because I was an enthusiast deeply in the nineties, yeah. that was my formative years. You know, a Tessie. Yeah, because I think of DB ones and SB fours and oh sure and different things. No, but like the first that. thing I think of is that. Then the, I'm so old; it's YB eight. Okay, it's Dieci. But I also was working at at a, at Pro Italia in the late '90s, early 2000s. So I was working on those things when they were being ridden by people at the time. Right. And the first mantra I ever worked on. I think it was this guy that's on one of these these TV shows. His name is Barry Weiss, and he's on one of these uh, storage hunter storage opening. They go and buy a storage war guy. I don't know. Or storage war guy. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, White hair. There. I know. All I remember is this guy Barry had a couple of really weird <laughs> bikes. He was always into the strange stuff. I'm pretty sure it was him that had the mantra. And I was the young, dumb, and full of cum kid that worked at this shop. Right. I was just a. I was what, 19, 20, 21, 22 when I was working there. It was a very strange situation for me to be there because I was surrounded by a bunch of gray hairs. They hated working on the Bomotas. Bomotas are fucking horrible to work on. I'm sorry, but they are. They're just always a compromise of, of look generally. Maybe the early ones were a little bit better, but once it got into the 90s, it, it was all about form and making sure that the bike was right and tight and fit and looked cool. Mm-hmm. It would be very difficult to adjust the valves on a Mantra, right, without taking the engine out of the frame and doing this. Anyway, so that none of the old guys wanted to work on them, and there I am, little Skippy, all <laughs> about it. I wanted to work on anything I could, and man, that Mantra, oh, oh my God, it was so awesome. And I, I, you know, I got the ride of a Mojo Mantra when I was like a very young guy. And, very, and very, knowing you, that was a positive experience. Oh man, I was so stoked, <laughs> right? Because I loved all of them, but the DB2, which was the older derivative air-cooled 900, basically 900 Monster, 900 SS engine, was in a DB2, which mm-hmm. was the ultimate Bomoda for me. That's the, I'm not saying that's the, the first thing I think of, but for me, the ultimate Bomoda, the one I would want, is a DB2. That's what which, you put in your garage. Right. And then the, the, the mantra was the next iterate. It was a DB3 and the DB4. So DB3 and DB4 shared the same kind of ovoid aluminum frame, whereas the DB2 was still steel. Right. And it was just a naked DB4. It was cool. And the DB4 looked like a pregnant guppy, and this thing looked like... I don't know. It looked like a yellow excretion from some strange alien, right? And I loved it. A burled walnut dash. Burled walnut, man. You can't get any more bizarre. So I like, I really like weird stuff. Really like weird stuff. And that is, 
it's pinnacle weird. There's not too many motorcycles that are more strange that made it to production. And this guy, what, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. Sasha Lockage. He, uh, I, and French. All I have to say is the dude's French, right? I thought it was the South <laughs> African, but that's some other designer from some other weird You're thinking brand. of Pierre Terblanche. Oh, that's right. I guess he is South African. Yeah, he is. That is. That's what I was thinking about. So he's French. He decided to make this thing. Bomoto had the balls uh, to, to produce it. Right. I mean, that took some right. meaty ones. Right. And, and if you're a younger listener, this is the same person that made the Voxen Wattman, which was an electric cruiser recently by the same people that are responsible for Venturi. So and that's, I just looked at the picture of that and it's just kind of like whatever. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't do anything for me. But his drawing of the new one was intriguing. Right. So, that. so, that's, so that's what this this story was basically was. Uh, he was approached to redesign the mantra. If you had a second go at it, either way, it's an interesting design exercise, right? I don't know what the practical application for it is, but well, I mean, it's just one of those kind of infamous kind of motorcycles, like especially like you know, you talk to people that that know their Italian bikes better, know their know their Bimotas pretty well. Sure, like eventually the conversation is going to turn to a mantra because it's just it evokes strong opinions, which I think is kind of interesting. When you talk about you know motorcycles that are uh, more classic in design or more timeless in design. Probably timeless is the better word. You know, you talk about, you know, people still talk about the 999. Still people talk about the mantra. Still people talk about the Tessie. You know, these are motorcycles that I don't know that they were necessarily loved when they came out. They were, they were all considered kind of flops. Yeah. Controversial. Uh, controversial for sure. But like we still talk about them. They're still in the consciousness. And, you know, there's some people that just love them and they're collected and, I'll sure. be curious to see like 30 years from now, like if they're the hot bike to have had. Oh, well, Mantra would be worth a whole lot of money. Any one of those, because so? yeah, they're just small they're, production. They're cheap run. to pick up now, I think. I'm sure they are to a point. I've looked a couple times. Really? I, I, I have to stay away because I will buy, I will <laughs> oh, absolutely own one of those one of these days. Oh. I, it's because I, you know, I'm telling you, it was at the incipient stages of my, career, of my career as a mechanic. And there I am working on these random weird machines so i have a, a place in my heart from that time right it's nostalgia right and the the you, you cannot beat an air-cooled two-valve ducati engine period that doesn't matter what iteration it is you can't beat it they're bitching fair enough fair enough um what else do you want to talk about do you want to talk about uh you know we were talking earlier about moto gp sports psychology Maybe yeah that's something we want to sure we were watching the race and uh we were talking about what was what was going on in the current the the race that was on today. Right, which, which we we won't. No, we don't want to. Yeah. You know, but it, I'll I'll say one rider in particular was kind of struggling, and I said, you know, he he doesn't seem like the type of guy that would be affected by the struggle. Like he'll pull out of it. And you mentioned that he is uh, one of the only ones that had admitted to having a sports psychologist, which I had never thought of. Yeah, I think I think it's okay to say that you know if you're really anti-spoilers this would be the time to plug your ears that we're talking about andrea davizioso and it was interesting because i got to talk to him at circuit of the americas and um i was very fortunate to have a have a bit of time with the ducati corsa team that weekend and one of the things i was looking to to explore more was this the mental side of the sport and andrea is a very thoughtful writer in, in the sense that when you ask him a question he gives a very meaningful response he's great for talking to about technical items on the bikes but he's also great for talking to about things outside of the the sport or tangential to the sport and so we, we ended up having this long conversation about sports psychology and he's the only writer in all of my conversations with gp writers that ever just came around oh yeah i have a 
I have a person I talk to and you know, you, you have to have your head right to, to get on the bike. And there's things that happen in your life that, you know, you wouldn't think bleed over into riding a motorcycle, but they totally do. And yeah, why wouldn't I, you know, develop my mind as much as I develop my body as far as hitting the gym and all that. And I know Jorge Lorenzo has a, a great deal of his program was mental toughness with his, you know the things he did with his father as far as training his mind and and um, and how that applies to the motorcycle. And I know Nikki Hayden does does mental exercises while doing workouts. So he'll be on a treadmill, get his heart rate up, and then they'll start firing math questions at him. You know, divide nine by three to you know hmm. seven plus five, hmm. and have him working his his mind and, and having to think with an elevated heart rate, which, you know, makes sense to me as like from a biathlon sort of way, that yeah. whole idea of like, you have to fire a rifle while your heart rate's doing 160 sure. beats in a, you know per uh, minute and how you breathe and think and go in between the beats and things like that. So it's very concentration. You're, concentration. you're breaking your own, you're concentrating on one thing and then you're having to break that to do another thing. All right. It's as uh, Jensen Button really ha- recently had to say to his team as he was driving. They were asking him to do like five different things at once. He's like, oh, you want me to rub my stomach and pat my head at the same time, right? Same type of thing. You got to be able to do that to a point. He says, oh, you want me to do that? All right, guys. He was fine with it. He was just like, you're asking, you're, it's a big ask, right? So for all these guys getting out on the MotoGP track, it's one thing to go around as we've talked about doing the pole line, right? The p- perfect lap hitting all the apexes. That's great. Wonderful. I'm glad that you're fast that way. Then having to do that with a, with a horde of other bikes around you, having to change up your line, having to change your dynamics and still be able to manage the thought process that it takes to say, okay, I need to be at this position on the track. If I'm going to pass this guy in three corners, Mm -hmm. right? You have to be able to do that mental chess while in duress, really, while Mm -hmm. your body is at, I never really thought about that with the heart rate up. That's a really cool thing to think of. Sure. Absolutely. I can see that being a, a, a thing that you'd have to gauge. It's like, how, how much am I stressing my body and does it matter? I've never considered it. Right. But that was what was interesting to think about sports psychology. I don't even know what, the, what you'd sit down. You'd have the guy on the, and it's like, all right, what's, what's your bench side manner like? What, 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 what you, how would you even approach it? What would they talk about? How, I'd love to know, right? I'm sure it's not so... Did your mom treat you well when you were uh, young? You know what I mean? It's not that. I'm sure there might bleed into that. But I think the- I think there's there could be a lot of things that you could talk about. I, I know, for instance, I, I don't know anything about um, Bradley Smith's as far as his mental preparation, but I know this year has been a marked difference in his pit box demeanor and how he interacts with the team because he's kind of a hothead sometimes because he's a young kid. I'm not going to get Is he a redhead? On. Yeah, that, Huh. So he's a ginger, huh. you know, just, just ask. It's interesting. Um, well actually he doesn't really have a lot of hair, so I don't know if he qualifies. That's as, why I had to ask. Cause I was not. like, I'm not sure if yeah. he's a ginger no, he's ninja a, or not. He's right? a self-identified ginger, but, but to be fair, because that's one of the things that, that, you know, a completely different topic, but one of the things that we in the MotoGP paddock and I only loosely associate myself with that because I'm not there full time, but in the conversations I've had, you can definitely see, He's a different person this season. He's matured as a writer and matured as a person. And I could see, I can think of a number of writers that could benefit from having someone to talk to just to be like, how do I, how do I work with my team when, you know, when things aren't going right or my blood is, you know, hot and, uh, you know, I came in from a bad session or, you know, the mechanic forgot to set the, 
the wheel spacer the right way. And so we had a mechanical issue or, you know, whatever, whatever could happen in that highly dynamic environment. I could see tons of benefit um, for a rider and and just having someone who's outside of all of that. And they're not a part of their entourage, not a part of their family, their friend who can just neutrally listen and say, Hmm, that's interesting. Did you, did you try saying this? Did you try doing that? How did that make you feel? What can you do to improve? And, you know, MotoGP riders are still people at the end of the day or, or any racer is still a person at the end of the day and they can get benefit from that. Sure. And they could be psyched out. A lot of people sure. think they're because they are where they are, they're mentally strong and they're perfect. Absolutely not. In fact, some of the, some of the, the weakest minds I've ever had to deal with have been racers that are, oh my gosh, they're just, they have all kinds of ability to get on the bike, but then they're head cases, right? And I got a crash course on that. Back in 2004, when I started at Graves, Yamaha, because I was I was thrust into being a chassis mechanic for a guy named Aaron Gobert, who was Anthony Gobert's younger brother. And on the same team was Jason DeSalvo, Jamie Hacking, and a guy named Damon Buckmaster. It And to see, so I got to, in that time, experience what it was like to deal with four distinct racer personalities that couldn't be more different, each sure. one of them, right? Yeah. And, and I, I was young enough to appreciate where I was, but old enough to kind of be watching and having to deal with as, as my first racer as a mechanic, instead of myself being a racer was Aaron Gobert. And it was, uh, it was difficult, but he had his wife. he had always had his wife there. Sweetheart, awesome, calming, easy to go along with. And that was a good thing. It was like a damper, hmm. right? Jason DeSalvo always had this one dude, I won't even name his name, but he was an ex racer and it, he was there and he was his damper, right? There were all kinds of things going on in that pit because he also had his parents and lots of people telling him what to do and the, the fanfare of, of, I mean, it was a bit uh, too much, right? And mm-hmm. you could see it and it would mm-hmm. affect, it would absolutely affect his performance. It bleeds right over. Right. Yeah. Whereas Jamie Hacking, he had his wife, I can't remember her name, uh, again, very calming and very focused and they didn't really interact with the rest of the team very much they were to themselves uh damon bugmaster is just a just a good old boy australian guy and he was old enough to not have to give a shit he was just there hauling ass right so it was interesting to watch all those things and thinking about this conversation relative to that i've gotten to see a lot of racers and see a lot of the the hot heads and the cool heads right working for eric bostrom and being around eric and and uh and ben just the most easygoing, laid-back right. people. But people when the world. they get off the bike, they're completely different people. Eric had to, he had to immediately sit down and pour over all the data immediately, immediately. And he would, he would delve into. I mean, he would jump right into the deep end of the data. He wanted to understand from an physically. He wouldn't just be like, "Tell me what was going on here." He, he would, he sit would down do with a the little computer. bit of that, but he wanted to see the data even before he would start talking. Huh. Right. You know, the crew chief would try and start downloading and he would get a little bit, but then it was like, you'd see him later on in the truck. I'd be, I'd be going in there to, to get a caliper or something and uh, into the, into the race rig to, because I'm working on his bike and they'd be, they'd be pouring over. They'd be in front of that screen, which was interesting to see where some people don't even want to, they don't want to see it. I'm not going to name names, but other riders are like, I don't, whatever. I don't, does it, is it, uh, where, where am I relative to the other dude? Right. And, and fair enough. I can see that as well. There's different ways to skin a cat when, with that. But Eric wanted to know everything exactly. And over the course of the season working with him, I watched it have an effect. I watched him get confidence from that, get mental strength from seeing the data, being able to say, hey, we need to work on this, going out and working on it. 
both from a mechanical standpoint, because he knew plenty. At that time, he had raced epic superbikes, amazing, very complex superbikes, and then was thrust on, at the time, it was a, a, a super stock R1, very similar to the one you have in your garage. It was an 04, well, 06. Man, not a lot of adjustment. Big, clunky, heavy transmission. I mean, a street bike, really, barely anything more. Whereas the bikes he had been on, the Ducati before that, or the or the Kawasaki before that, right. were just the trickiest. They were like little Mono, MotoGP bikes. Because right? that's when World Superbike really had a exactly. lot going on. Exactly. So there. you could do a lot with the bikes too. Sure, yeah. absolutely, amazing amounts. Which is why, again, that's why I'm go. It goes to the point where he had to get his mind wrapped around racing a bike that he couldn't do the same things on, not by a long shot. And eventually through the season, he got to a point where he'd win races and be on the podium. And in the beginning, though, it wasn't like that. So I got to see this firsthand, and it's an interesting thing. The more I'm thinking about more, absolutely, I could see the clear benefit of having somebody that, that can even just to listen, that understands and can, can, bend, can bend your mental state into a better place, for sure, because you're surrounded by all these personalities in racing, whether it be the fan structure that's around you, your chassis guy that's working on the bike that you have to trust, your data guy that's been reading the data, your crew chief that has to interact with all of them, the team owner who's a hothead, right? Can you imagine all the different things? And then the racers that are surrounding you, and oh my gosh, it's it's got to be a... You can imagine that at a MotoGP level, right? It's probably a little bit more insulated, right? You only have to deal with what's in your pit box in the MotoGP level, but the pressure's got to be immense compared to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember when I did the uh, Skip Barber Motorcycle School, which is now a bit defunct, but I did it with, with Michael. I did it with Michael Sizz. Uh, and he was the, the head instructor. And he always talked about the mental bandwidth. That's the framework he used to to express all the factors that are going on in the yeah. bike. And, and you know, I think you and I have talked before about um, running electric motorcycles, but that's always been the thing that shocked me the most. Ha. Huh. I didn't even didn't even see it coming. Ah. Oh jeez. Um that was the thing that surprised me because you don't expect it to be that different. It's still a motorcycle, it's still the basic, you know, dynamics, it's still the same basic motions. You're sitting on a seat between two wheels, yeah, you got you got handlebars, sure. It always it always got me how much more mental bandwidth I had while riding an electric uh motorcycle. And I and I can only think it's because the lack of noise the lack of vibration you have the, to clutch the, you don't there's have to no shift, clutch right? there's no shift it's a big part of riding a motorcycle yeah. that you just all of a sudden don't have to worry about you know, we, right? we, we think of like you know any any motorcyclist that's that's been on the road for a little while these things are very natural you don't give a second thought to to shifting through gears and it's yep it's intuitive but you don't realize is how much brain power churning away in the back there is being devoted to it and then when you remove it how much more how many more different things you 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 see? How many many different things you you realize and understand better? And I was like, oh, I'm like, oh, I can really feel what's going on with the front tire now. I can really, I'm really thinking about my line more, where my brake mark is going to be. And hmm. sure, well, that that's a a classic uh, twist of the wristism. As as you get your dollar, have, do you did you ever read Twist of the Wrist? Keith Code? No, I never did. Oh my gosh, it, it was like oh a big thing right when I was going to uh, right as I started writing in a motorcycle. All right. Well, no, that's something that you you should just on general principle being yeah. in the industry. It, it is 
not saying everything's perfect, but it is a good one. And he talks about having a dollar. You have a dollar to spend. Where are you going to spend that dollar? Sure. You have a finite amount of attention to pay. Sure. And he explains that very clearly. Like this is if you're going in the corner, you're spending X amount on downshifting, X amount on your brake, uh, where, where you're braking, X amount on the guy that's behind you, X amount on the girl that's in front of you, whatever it is that's going on, you know. So that is uh, that plays to it. And then a little bit for Elrond, you got to have a little, because he was a heavy Scientologist, you had to be thinking about, <laughs> don't break until you see Elrond. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, you make that joke, but let's loop back, you know, to that Andre Davizioso comment. Like, you know, if you're spending pennies thinking about your girlfriend, that fight you had three nights ago, or what's going on with your family, yeah, or, sure. you know, your cat just died, or, or whatever it is, whatever yeah. it is, if you're spending any sort of currency on it to use to use the Keith Code framework... You know that's wasted. Yeah, that's wasted. That's that's money that could have been spent on, or it could be a driver. Else. I'm not gonna lie, it could be a driver. I had a situation where I had a surgery, like the week before I had started racing for a year, and this is a few years back. I had one of the more successful race situations for the next two months after having a not a heavily invasive surgery, but a surgery that was uh, problematic, and it was weird. Like I'm on a bike and I'm uncomfortable. Uh, because I still have sutures and, and, and it's, it's a problem, but it added a weird focus dynamic and I don't know how, right? So it depends on your, it depends on your psychology. So a good psychologist would be able to, uh, to, to morph that into something good. Sometimes you have to take the bads, deflect them and into something good. I don't know how, I don't know why for myself it worked out that way, but I remember thinking this is really strange for me to be out here doing this. I probably shouldn't be doing this. Eh, but then it 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 was okay. It is, it, is that like the pain that that focused you kind of thing? I don't think so, because it you just go numb after a certain amount because you're so focused. And maybe that was the good thing is that I was fun, instead of thinking about that, I was just doing what you do when you're on a motorcycle, which is just focus on the task at hand in such a surreal way, right? Especially when you're racing, right? That is all you're focused on. Takes your mind off everything else. So it's it the the freak out the 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 psychology part is that half an hour before you get on the bike when you're before you're gridded up man that is a trouble and for myself i found early on just laying next to the bike in the pit all gear on gloves on helmet on earplugs in in the helmet i mean really be ready to get on the bike i would just lay next to it you lay down just just like taking a little just, nap just taking a little nap folded hands in front of me the sound of the racing going on waiting for a second call Really, that was it. You hear the first call, your your heart rate always goes up. You start getting nervous. But if your bike is ready, the warmers are on, the tire pressures are set, the fuel's in it, all the stuff that you think of, as long as you can do that and you're calm, then you can sit down, lay down, and it allows you, you go through the you go through the track in your head maybe, maybe, or you're just zoning out. Some people like to use, see all these racers use uh, headphones. They're just trying to focus and they want to listen. They're, they're going to kick out the jams. They've got flock of seagulls jamming in their headphones as they're as they're on the grid, right? That could be another way to do it. For me, it was just laying down. That's a, that could could that be construed as a psychological thing? Absolutely, for me. But I didn't know any better. It was just what I did, and it just lowered your heart rate and it put you in this weird, serene thing. I don't. I haven't gotten a chance to do that very often because, unfortunately, I end up going to racetracks not very well prepared and in a, in a, in a hurry in general. So there I am just in a hurry and gnarly and boom, I get on a bike and I go and I'm still okay, but it's way better when you have that time to, to Zen. I think Zen is probably a good way to put it. You're just whatever Zen you found. Get your, get your head in, in the right space. Yep. Hmm. The only thing I have to add to that, there's, I know 
there's the from a physiological point of view your muscles and your body performs better when you have a slight fever and so it was, it was interesting huh. listening to you talk about huh. the surgery and how it helped focus you because you would think like you know if you have a, a, a flu or a cold or whatever you're probably not going to be like 100 percent. but actually like when you increase the body temperature slightly not a lot like 101 i think is the optimal temperature that your body bizarre. actually like performs at its peak efficiency <laughs> never heard that maybe it's allowing blood flow better to the brain i don't know right yeah. you know when things are warm they flow better right it's, it's, even it's like oil in an engine <laughs> it could even more simple it could just be that fight or flight where it's like yeah sure it's, i'm sick i can't be in a fight right now right. i've got to fly i gotta right? get out of here yeah right hmm. i think with that we should uh, wrap up the show really? i think is it already done i think i think so by the time we edit it down i think that's gonna be where we want it to be kick stands up Kick stands up. That's your sign. Yeah. Don't break until you see Elrond. That's what I say. (laughs) All right. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Uh, Let's get this party started, huh? All right. I am Quentin Wilson. I am Jensen Beeler. We got to start better than that. This is Two Enthusiasts with Quentin Wilson. Be like, "Mm, yeah, Two Enthusiasts podcast. Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber here. Got with me, big Q dog W. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you All right, so take, take it away. Do it. <laughs> <laughs>